Let us turn now in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 29, and we'll begin reading with verse 1 and read through verse 14. Genesis 29, verses 1 through 14. Beginning to read then with verse 1, Hear now the word of the Lord. So Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. And he looked and saw a well in the field, And behold, there were three flocks of sheep lying by it, for out of that well they watered the flocks. A large stone was on the well's mouth. Now all the flocks would be gathered there. They would roll the stone from the well's mouth, water the sheep, and then put the stone back in its place on the well's mouth. And Jacob said to them, My brethren, where are you from? And they said, we are, we are from Haran. And he said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nabor, Nahor? And they said, We know him. So he said to them, Is he well? And they said, He is well. And look, uh, his daughter Rachel is coming with the sheep. And he said, uh, Look, it is still high day. It is not time for the cattle to be gathered to the, together. Water the sheep and go and feed them. But they said, uh, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and they uh, have rolled the stone from the well's mouth. Then we water the sheep. Now, while he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. And, uh, uh, And it came to pass, when Jacob saw her, saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, that Jacob went near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted up his voice and wept. And Jacob told Rachel that, the, that, that he was her brother's, her father's relative and that he was Rebekah's son. So she ran and told her father. Then it came to pass when Laban heard the report about Jacob, his sister's son, and that he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. So he told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. May the Lord bless this reading to our good understanding. Well, the title of the sermon is, Where Has Love Gone? Where Has Love Gone? We live in a strange day where there is no abundance of things like public nudity, uh, online dating sites, you might say mechanisms for love of one kind or another. People have these ideas how can I obtain love? And they have all different definitions for that. So for some people, it's just sexual. Other people, it's a little deeper. Uh, most people have some idea of security and longevity, the enduring nature of love and affection and that sort of thing. But we, we live in a day where there are all kinds of mechanisms for these things, all kinds of talk about it, and yet there seems to be a difficulty with obtaining it. In other words, in the in the 
place where it would, it would otherwise appear the most green and the most fecund in terms of nature. There's this great difficulty. People today, the, um, our gen- the newest generations are ha- actually having some difficulties in even, even trusting each other enough to go on dates or to, to uh, ask each other for a coffee or something like that. There's an awkwardness abroad, which is the very opposite of what we see in the Bible here when it comes to these kinds of things. So uh, I want to talk a little bit about the idea of love and what we see here in Genesis 19 with the relationship between Jacob and Rachel. It's a lovely thing, and we dare not pass by such displays as this to find our way to a text in the Old Testament on justification or the sovereignty of God or something like that. Uh, preferring the one over the other. The whole Bible is anointed by the Holy Spirit. The whole Bible is given to us for a blessing. And so when you read through uh, texts like this and you see details that are given out on, um, on the sheep and the cows and their, their, when they're getting watered and that sort of thing, you ask yourself, why in the world does the Bible care about such details as this? Why doesn't it just tell us about how we can be made right with God? It's time to beware Your own mind is not as fruitful as it ought to be. The text is king over our brains and not vice versa. The text is king over us. We are to be submissive to it. We're to pay attention to every word and ask ourselves constantly, why is this in the Bible? What is God's intention for us as we read these things to learn? And certainly in this part of this chapter, one of God's, Uh, blessings is to point us to the fact that there is a kind of transcendental love which is possible on this earth between people like us. That there are great possibilities for us. That we ought to entertain them. That we ought to pray about them. That we ought to look for them. And the way this falls out in this story here today, this narrative, it's a, a wonderful kind of a thing. Because on this day... Um, I do not believe that Rachel woke up this morning thinking, I am going to fall in love today. I'm going to see the man of my future. Nor when when Jacob woke up, did he think the same. That is that today will be the day. He he had started out many miles away from uh, southern, southern areas of Palestine, the Bethel region of Palestine. He had started out with the command of his father ringing in his ears, that he would go and find a wife in the land of his forebears. So he went off, not knowing really anything except the command of his father and the general promises of God, that God was going to bless their family with more descendants than the stars of the sky and the sands of the seashore. You have that general promise, but then how does it work out? In your life, Jacob was beginning to reach uh, his early middle age at this point. He wasn't a teenager anymore. And uh, uh, he had these promises ringing in his brain, and yet nothing had appeared. Nothing had become clear before his eyes. So he took his father's command, and he went, he went to the east. And that's where we find him as this text begins. <clears throat> now, what the Bible uh, uh, points out is that, Um, 
Love is a multifaceted thing worthy of our contemplation. I've broken it down here into four things that I see in this text. The first is that the love of the Bible, the love that the Bible encourages into, is love that grounds itself in the Lord. Love that grounds itself into the Lord. A negative illustration to illustrate this. Today, our fellow citizens almost appear... Um, totally ignorant about the things of the Constitution. Now, the Constitution, constitutional law, is a rather abstract idea. It doesn't come to us like child's play or like the things that we do as little children. It's a fairly sophisticated idea. The Constitution, the idea of the Constitution is based on the idea of law. Well, we say... What is law? Most of our fellow neighbors and our people today, most people do not believe in any absolute law. Any uh, obligation that people have that goes all the way up to God, that's founded in the living and the existence of God himself. Now that's the problem, you see. If we don't have the living God at the pyramid, at the tip of the pyramid of our lives, and all of our values and all of our definitions, everything beneath that changes. What is love... If we have no God, who defines law? Who, who, what is love if we have no God to love? Who, what is love if we do not understand divine love? All of our human love, our horizontal love, bases itself and grounds itself in vertical love, divine love, the theological love that we have for the divine being, uh, the Lord God Almighty of the Scriptures, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Now, when people cut themselves off from this God, they cut themselves off from all of his benefits, all of his definitions. That's why the leaders of our country today are so willing to lie, cheat, and steal about each other and their reputations. It's like we're in a moral, philosophical desert where nothing grows. And then are we to wonder why uh, the wheat fields are not plush in the midst of the desert? We shouldn't. We should realize that there's a connection between A and B. The existence of God and everything else. And so we see here that as, as Jacob sets out on his journey, this is not just a horizontal journey. This is not just a trip with, from some young man trying to entrap some young woman who doesn't know it. This is really complex. He is going forward on the basis of his familiarity with the covenant and the covenant promises. He's going forward on the basis of his family's awareness. His family is unique. They are the only family in the world at this time. I should say his larger family because we see that Laban has some uh, knowledge and some awareness of the Lord too. But he's going forth as a unique individual. And he's, he's unique because of the context, the theological context of his life. God has met them. God has promised him certain things. He's already, he's already had some intense experiences with the Lord. Uh, these theophanies where God showed himself to Jacob. We've already seen where he had this uh, stairway into heaven, Jacob's ladder, songs about that. So he's going, going forth here, not as some totally naive young man 
who doesn't understand anything. He's going forth as a man on a mission because that mission has been defined out by him. Um, he's he's self-conscious. Now we might wish that he was more self-conscious. We might we might wish that he was more consistent. We might wish that that every decision and every determination in his life was totally congruent with a deep knowledge of God. We see that that's not the case. But what he's got is much more than anybody else around him. And he's learning all the time. God is tutoring him as he goes and teaching him more and more. And so this story about, about Jacob and Rachel has a tremendously rich context to it. Um, it's sort of like the different. I, I say here that, that, that this biblical love grounds itself in the Lord. It's sort of the different be, difference between, uh, if you think of growing plants, think of hydroponics. And, have ever, and anybody, I, think, I trust everybody probably has some awareness of that, but it's where people, they, they've learned how to grow plants, flowers, whatever, in uh, pure water. Uh, and uh, so if you see a hydroponic situation, you see this big root mass. You can see it clearly because it's the plant is growing under the, uh, the un, at least under the water where it's been, been placed to grow, and it's controlled there. And they've they've added to the water artificially the kinds of nutrients that the plant needs. Uh, sometimes you can you can actually because of the quality and the control that you have over that water, you can grow pretty good plants in it. But that is the that's the artificial variety, and it, it can be done even commercially to some degree. Uh, but uh, the natural way is to to have those roots growing in real soil, where the nutrients that they're adding artificially are already there in the soil and coming down upon the soil in terms of plant life and animal life that uh, decay, and uh, the nutrients then reach into the soil. And so um, in in Jacob's perspective or in our perspective the ground the ground we are we are not just planted hydroponically where if the if the farmer was not there to add stuff to the water we would just die immediately we are and jacob was or uh, jacob was here grounded in real ground so if you think of dirt being rich in its, in its sedimental value and um, all the nutritional value, and you think of those little, those little roots growing down into the dirt and just kind of loving it, you know, growing their complexity of the little fingers of the roots, just growing, reaching out. Um, this is what uh, Mr. Damro is trying to work on here and trying to get an expert in. Uh, uh, and I, so I want, I want to draw this picture out very, very brilliantly and creatively uh, because that's what he's looking at. He's trying to find these plants and grow them, vegetables and that sort of thing that... Um, uh, are, are deep in the rich soil of the land. Well, we make an analogy here between the, the soil of the ground outside and our lives, and we realize the same thing about Jacob. Jacob is a, a man who is grounded in the things of the Lord. Now we know God is uh, God is a divine being. He's different from we are, from that which we are. Uh, he is. He cannot be just accessed whenever we want to uh, we've like like some idol that we might have on a shelf he is 
above and beyond that. He's superior to that. He's the divine God. And so we have to take care with how we cultivate our relationship with him. He doesn't owe us anything. If we disregard devotions, if we disregard prayer, if we just don't care, if we want to treat him like some ornament, he can withdraw his transcendental dimension from us and leave us to get uh, uh, undernourished because he's putting us under a kind of judgment. But Jacob, to a great degree, and this is what we have portrayed here in the, in the scriptures of the Old Testament and the Genesis here, Jacob uh, had a, a, a pretty rich life in the midst of faith. Uh, he was involved, he was part of a Christian family. And that's what we've been focusing on in this series of uh, well, what does God have to say to the Christian family? So we see Jacob here. Now, uh, the love that it's spoken of here in this chapter, it's not, it doesn't only ground itself in the Lord, it grounds itself or involves itself with holistic people. And I, I love this dimension of the Old Testament. And so often we just overlook these things. We turn to the, they turn to the, the woman of the Proverbs 31 woman. We read there and we only, we only see the theological dimensions of this woman. We, we fail to see that she's a holistic woman, that she's got people under her control, that in a sense she is the uh, vice president of their family company. And uh, she's the, her, the husband has delegated tremendous amounts of responsibility to her. She's wise. She's smart. She knows her way around. She has all of these abilities and gifts, and she's using them uh, for the purpose of blessing the Lord's name, the, the name of the Lord as he's created her, developed her, and as she and her family are developing the kingdom of God, the relationship that she has with her husband and her family and all that kind of thing. Well, we see the same thing here. In this passage, so much of the details that come before this, which we're apt to just read through and say, well, what does that have to do with the story? So many of these details have to do with this holistic approach to life, where the things of the sixth day are as important as the things of the seventh day. The things of the seventh day in in many senses are more lofty or more important in the sense that if we disregard those, our whole six days are ruined. But nonetheless, the Lord created us to be six-day creatures and not just seventh-day creatures. And the things of the six days are very, very, very important to us. So here we see Jacob. He's on this journey. He comes to the land of of the people of the east. He looks and he sees a well. Now he he goes and he aims at that well. Why would that be? Well, it's because Jacob understands that in this semi-arid land, that wells are centers of interest and, and the, for the population. I saw a thing yesterday on the black barbershop and the role that that has played in the black community. And this young black man was explaining how uh, for those young boys, black ch- children and, and young men, for those young men who don't go astray, who don't go out of orbit and just lose themselves, the black barbershop is, is extremely important. You could say talk the same about the black church. It's where they get tutored. It's where they, 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 they rub shoulders with the older men. And if you go into a black barber shop and you ask a question, you get about, you know, five to 20 different opinions. So sometimes the opinions uh, buttress each other and support each other. Sometimes they'll just be one inspiration over here, one inspiration over there. But they talk. They talk much more than we do in the white barber shops. The white barber shops are kind of sterile compared to the black barbership because... Uh, 
Um, sometimes white people are more sterile. We just don't talk as much. We don't. Uh, it's partly out of necessity. You know, when you're if you're come out of a poorer neighborhood, you've got you you, you might not have a, a, as many um, devices, as many implements at your disposal that you can lose yourself in to ask questions and that sort of thing. You're more prone to go to the people around you. So that's what he was bringing out about the black barbershop. Uh, that uh, that that they that was really a lot to be learned. Well, we see here that uh, Jacob exhibits a lot of knowledge. He sees a well. He knows right away. This is a place that's going to be like a meeting place for people, and especially a couple different times of the day. Now, what was he doing? Why was he interested in finding people? He was on this journey to find his relatives. He didn't have the um, the intelligence services of. Uh, um, of a greater Palestine to give him any tips. He had to use his, his wherewithal to find his uncle Laban and to find the people. So he heads in the direct, general direction that he knows is Haran. And then when he sees these wells or meeting places, he begins stopping and asking questions. You notice the questions that he asks. He says, um, well, he sees this large, he sees where the flocks are already gathered. And there can be dozens, even hundreds uh, even thousands of sheep and cattle at one time. So he, and he sees the difficulty there that they've got a stone on the well's mouth. Well, why, why is a stone on a well's mouth? You know, they've got a well coming up out of the ground and they've got a big stone over the top of it. Why would that be? Well, it's because you, you want, one thing, you want to stop evaporation. You want to protect the water, water's purity down below. You don't want, you don't want people throwing dead stuff down the well to poison the well. You want to protect the water. You want to protect it for its use. And so it's a, it's a fragile environment and precious. And so Jacob sees that. He sees that there are already some large flocks of sheep around the well. That means that there were people with the sheep. And uh, he says to them, my brethren, where are you from? He doesn't wait. He doesn't want, he, he, he has some social graces. He doesn't wait to you know, come up and kind of just walk around and wait for people to ask him if he wants a drink or say, where are you from? He takes as the proverbial bull by the horns. Jacob is a, a well-rounded man. He's He has gifts of personality and gifts of sociability. So he he's, he speaks right away and he says, uh, where, where are you from? Why does he ask that? Because he's interested in a particular place, people from a particular place. They say, uh, we're from Haran. You can see, see Jacob's brain light up. Aha! I've got some people over here from Haran. Now let me see what else they know. So he says, um, do you know uh, Laban, the son of Nahor? Now he doesn't say, do you know my uncle Laban? He just says, you know Laban, the son of Nahor. I love the way that people would identify themselves in this day. They didn't have first names and last names. They had first names, but then they would link their, they would link themselves to the co covenantal community around them. And so this this meant that you would identify the person you were looking for as well as that, that person linked to a father or a mother and their family clan from which they were with. So he says, do you know Laban, the son of Naor? And they said, we know him. Now, why might he be looking for this uh, son of uh, Nahor, Laban? Well, it might be because he was a bill collector or something. You know, there might be some bad reasons. But so he says to them right away, "Is he well?" He he asks about his. He asks a question that indicates that he has a concern for this man. Is he well? And they said uh, he is well. And then they go on to say, "And, and look, 
his daughter Rachel is coming with the sheep. In other words, they're they're more pretty open to to sharing more information about Laban, and uh, even that his daughter is coming with the sheep. <clears throat> um, now there, uh, in the next couple passages or next couple verses, you can see that uh, Rachel that he she's called a shepherdess, which is a technical name for someone who is a a tender of sheep, and really an administrator over the tending of sheep. And no, I have no doubts about it that Rachel, uh, while she was a, a single young woman and out here with probably hundreds of thousands of sheep from her uncle Laban, I have no doubts about it that she had other people around her. In other words, there was kind of an entourage. Uh, uh, Laban had organized himself well. He was a prosperous man, and so there were staff around her. Uh, she was evidently in charge of the staff as the daughter of Laman. But there were that was a fairly complicated thing. It doesn't say it doesn't. I don't expect that there were just dozens of sheep around this well. There were probably large, large flocks, and these were all under the control and the care of this young woman. Well, what does that say about her? What does that say about the way the family cultivated the children and got them to be responsible people to whom they would entrust a lot of sheep, uh, which were extremely valuable? Uh, Rachel was there with the sheep, but she she had to have a way to protect them, to guard them, to take care of them, to make sure that they were... Uh, that they were there and safe for her uncle Laban. And all of that is presupposed here by what we see as they they interact together. And so it says in verse 9, well, uh, to to go on to the the third point, that this love that we see portrayed here uh, involves true romance. This is exactly the kind of thing that we see missing in today's world. I mean, young people are trying to get together. They're trying to find a way to have some, to gain some knowledge or familiarity with each other. And they would really like to have uh, something more than just a, a, an automaton-like relationship. You know, hello, Betty, how are you? I am good, Bob. You know, <laughs> uh, no, we want something. We want to have living, breathing people with whom we're relating to. And so there's real romance that is that forms part of the context of this passage. And it's brought out. It's brought out just momentarily in seed fashion, but it's there for sure. Now, while he was still speaking to them, verse 9, Rachel came with her father's sheep. Now, first of all, when the, when the, when the other people of the region, when they identified this young woman coming as uh, Laban's daughter, <laughs> you got to believe that Jacob's mind is racing. It's racing. Not, not only has he found his uncle Laban, but he's found one of the women of the family first or encountered them first. And so what is he thinking right away? Is she, is she available? Is she, is she already married? What, what is her standing? What is her position in life? Is she a cutie? Or, is, you know, might I, might I not be so drawn to her? He's thinking these things as she's getting closer. These are natural for us as human beings. And so she comes with her father's sheep. And um, it, it says, it came to pass, verse 10, when Jacob saw Rachel, 
You could make a sermon title out of this, When Jacob Saw Rachel. You see how, if you if you think about people and the way they behave and the way they think, that, that is pregnant with awareness and with understanding. When Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, uh, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, you see the context of it. She's this young woman, but he doesn't just... He doesn't just um, let him, his mind fantasize about her beauty or about the fact that she's there. He's placing her in a context. She's in this family context. And uh, part of her context are these sheep that she's with right now and her uh, sovereignty and her authority over these great flocks. That Jacob went near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth. Now, this Normally, it took a number of men to do this. But Jacob, whether he also got some help from the other men or not, but he took, again, he kind of took the bull by the horns. He knows that the top of the well, that the well cap has to be removed. And so he does that on his own. And uh, Rachel may have wondered in her mind, who is this bothy lad who is is concerned to help us to get water for the sheep? And he, he probably exhibited some strength in doing this. He wasn't just a wimpy guy that was waiting for the dozens of other men that were there to take the well. He took, and, and for being a stranger at this well, is a tremendous amount of um, a chutzpah or a confidence it would take to do this sort of thing. I mean, just think about it. And so he, he, he takes the, the camp off the well and rolls the stone from the mouth and... Uh, and uh, they begin the watering process for the sheep. And all this while, Jacob is watching Rachel. And, watch, and Rachel maybe cast in a furtive glance at Jacob. We don't know. But at a certain point, he, he kissed her. Now, this is, <laughs> this is not a you know an intimate kiss of people that uh, know each other well. It's probably a rather formal kiss, like kissing on the cheek or the forehead or something like that. But he, he, he kissed Rachel. And then he lifted up his, his voice and he wept. Because by then he must have determined that she was unmarried, that she was lovely, and that he could very well find opportunity to make her his wife. And I know that that's surmising a certain amount, presuming a certain amount. But if you've been a young man or a young woman in these circumstances, you know what you're thinking. You know what's going on. And so, um, and Jacob told Rachel then that he was her father's relative and that he was Rebecca's son. Now, this means in that culture at that time, this means certain things. He was there as an unmarried man coming from his, from her relative. She added two and two very quickly too, and she knew right away that he was an eligible man and that, um, she was probably under some restraints herself in terms of marriage. Uh, they had talked about this, her and her father, her, uh, her, um, her senior Laban and, um, uh, and his family. And, um, um, and so uh, she, she realized that there were possibilities of intimacy here and the, the rest of her life ran before her eyes. She could see right away that Jacob was happy with her, that the things 
for which he had longed, namely to find a wife that, that might love him and that might be uh, a willing and responsible mate for him. All of these things suddenly came dancing before the, the two of their eyes. And so to show some of her excitement, she said, it says at the end of verse 12 that she ran and told her father. And then it came to pass when Laban heard the report about Jacob, his sister, that he ran to meet him. There, this is a, an occasion of real excitement because there was romance in the air. There were possibilities of romance in the air. And there's, there's nothing that, um, this is what, as I said, this is one of the things that our day is starving for want of. You can't seal yourself off from the Lord and then hope to open yourself to a deep transcendental idea of romance. If there is no transcendence, if there is no God above, then there's no possibility for transcendental love. Today, people have thought that they could be totally autonomous, totally in charge of their own lives, defining everything out for themselves as individuals, and then somehow they were going to find uh, intimacy and uh, affection and uh, uh, romance just out there. We fail to realize how, how involved the idea of romance is, how dependent it is upon the living God. And his values. And so, but, but as Jacob kisses her and, uh, and weeps in front of her, she, you know, there's no, she, when, when he's weeping in front of her, she probably, I mean, she was probably somewhat startled wondering what in the world is going on here. But on the other hand, she, she had some idea too that he was really emotionally touched by seeing her, by realizing that they were both of a meritable, meritable age and that he, he, he was overwhelmed by her presence. Now, is there anything that would make, uh, that would endear a woman more to a man than seeing his vulnerability like this, by seeing his strong emotions like this, by knowing that he was a relative who was also of the faith? I mean, th those are the things that precluded most of the relationships in Rachel's life and most of the relationships in, in Jacob's life. And here the, the, uh, the fences were all down. Uh, suddenly standing before her and him was somebody of a, of a general a cognizance and awareness of the covenant that God had made with men. And so she runs and tells her uncle and her uncle runs to, to them. So it involves, this grounds itself in the Lord. It involves holistic people who are living, breathing, emotional, heartsome people. It involves the true romance Brothers and sisters, there's nothing more wonderful in today's desert where people are afraid of each other. They have no confidence they, they, because there's that God behind the scenes. We, all of us are confessing Christians who believe in the sovereignty of God. So when, when we do anything, we're aware. If we, if we bump our nose or stumble against something with our feet, we're aware God had some purpose in this. You know, he, he, <laughs> he may have wanted me to hurt my toe, but he's also got some purpose on this. I don't think that any of us in this group would, would, would fail to see the, the deeper purposes and, and ideas of life. And so this is, a, she, he, they had met, uh, he had met a girl and she had met a guy, young guy, and they both had this, this background of information. 
And we see how after this, then it the last point is that all of this ties back into their families and into the grounds that I started with in point one. Because it, it reminds them, that reminds Jacob, God is not done with me. He's remembered me. He's remembered his promises unto me. And uh, this young woman is definitely a possibility. It seems like from what we know later on in the story, it just seems like from the moment that they saw each other, this young woman and this young man had an attraction for each other. Well, in a, in a an universe that's absent from God, what does that mean? Almost nothing. Two, two, two stones happen to bump into each other. What does that mean? Nothing. But in the God, in the uh, God Jehovah God dominated universe, it can mean a great deal. And so, uh, in verse twelve and four, twelve to fourteen, um, as he as she runs and tells her father, and her father Laban hears the report. He hears it. I mean, it would be a big enough thing if somebody just came from the family in Palestine to visit him. But here he sees that this is a um, a young man of meritable age. And he knows right away what the possibilities are here. Uh, so he runs. He runs. This Laban, we know later on he's kind of selfish, kind of a selfish guy. He has definitely has his faults, his me tooism first. But in this case, even Laban is so excited about this that he runs to meet, um, to meet uh, Jacob. And he embraces him and he kisses him and brought him to his house. So he told Laban all these things. He told Laban about his search for a wife. Oh, brothers and sisters, if you have a wife, husband or wife today, you know some of the things that you went through to obtain them, some of the loneliness, some of the searching. If you don't, you know some of, the, some of that also. And, um, and Laban says to him, surely you are my bone and my flesh. It reminds us of back in Genesis when God created woman of man and, and, and Adam says, this, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Uh, there was a, a, a love of the larger family here that is exudes this meeting. And uh, he inv might have invited Jacob to stay with him for a month, and they, they just they had a idyllic uh, time together, the one part of the family with the other. Now, as time develops, some of Laban's <laughs> bad faults come out, and uh, he, he reveals that he can be a trickster just like Jacob was a trickster of his brother uh, Esau. Uh, it's, it's always wonderful how all things work out for good. <laughs> our negative personalities and our positive personality traits. All of this works together. God takes this like clay and he molds it together in his sovereignty, however he would. And it's lovely and it's, it's joyful. It's fun. Um, but the biggest thing is here that God, God deals with us holistically. He knows how he made us. He knows he gave us a romantic uh, part of our personalities, a capacity to love. And, and he knows how wonderful this is. So, so oftentimes we let the effect of the sin and the effects of sin so color us in our lives. We, be, we, 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 we go back into our shells. We're so afraid because of the possibilities of sin. We're so afraid to even talk to each other. But what this text shows us is that, yes, we cannot, we cannot minimize the effects of sin. But you can also cultivate in yourself a, a greater prosperity and a greater hope in the living God and the way he's formed you and the possibilities that there are for your life. And that's one of the great points of the sermon. I, I want us to try to obtain more for ourselves 
out of our lives and not less. And we see that definitely here in this first meeting of Jacob and Rachel. And uh, when we think of the Lord Jesus Christ, when we think of our Messiah coming to renew us, to renew our relationship with God, and then to renew our relationship with each other, to give us more and more possibilities. Remember, John says, John records that Jesus said, I've come that you might have life, and life abundantly. We're not, we sh- as Christians, we should not be minimalists. Obtaining the, the least that life has for us in order to keep safe or to keep away from sin or to keep from messing up. Yes, we should be concerned about that side of our lives, but we also ought to be concerned to obtain more. And if we make a mistake, then we, what the Bible tells us, repent. Repent of your mistakes and then keep going forward. Our Lord Jesus wants us to develop the earth. He wants us to cultivate existence. He wants us to cultivate the riches that God has made. He wants our lives to be as rich as possible. So to be fearful and um, ever hesitant to take a forward step in life that is antithetical to faith. It's antithetical to creation. It's somewhat mindful of the problems of redemption. But despite the fact that we're sinners, God still gives us these promises that if we follow him, Psalm 1, if we follow him, O greatly blessed is the man who walketh not astray in counsel of ungodly men, nor stands in sinners' way, nor sitteth in the scorner's chair, but places his delight. Delight. Uh, what is the purpose of man to enjoy, to uh, enjoy uh, to uh, oh, no, I'm forgetting the first catechism question to glorify God and enjoy him forever the enjoyment God wants us to do this upon the Lord's law upon God's law he meditates on his law day and night he, he shall be like a tree that grows set by the water's edge which in its season yields its fruit and green its leaves abide I've got some a couple plants in my garden that are semi semi green. They the leaves are withering and uh, getting brown that brown look on the edges. But uh, when God describes our lives, this is the description. So though we're supposed to be aware of our sin and aware of the problems of sin, He paints this glorious picture for us of going forward and developing and, and imbibing the greatest prosperity that we can possibly have. And and all of this has come. Through the Lord. Our Lord Jesus is concerned for us to be uh, reconciled with God the Father, not be afraid of him, but realize that he is open to us and rich in us in Christ. But Jesus also came that we might have an abundant life here in this world that God created for us. It's like, this is a greenhouse. What are you making of it? Minimalism or maximalism? And this story just glorifies broadcast the possibilities of the living God even amongst the sinful race of men that we know so well through the scriptures. Let's close in prayer. Our Father and our God, we pray that you would bless us with the scriptures, with the text of scripture, with the, with the uh, bullions and the joy and the prosperity of scriptures. We, we, we don't want to believe a prosperity gospel, but we don't want to be minimalistic. We, won't, we don't want to be anti-creational. 
We want to embrace the creation. We, 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 we want to embrace you, O oh God. O oh, living God, we want to embrace you with all the promise and all the fullness that you have. O oh God, we pray that we would not be minimalists in faith, but that you would indulge our faith with hope and love, that we might enjoy all that you've given us, so that we might be better prepared for heaven, where our joy and our love will be consummated with the fullest extent of those ideas possible. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.